My name is Dustin. If we haven't met yet, I'm one of the pastors here. And we're in week four of our series in the Psalms. We've considered a psalm of praise up to this point. Uh, we've considered a psalm of lament, and we've considered a psalm of royalty. And today it's Thanksgiving in May. And I, I thought, uh, it was like, we are doing a psalm of thanks. And uh, in that, I thought, you know, uh, what should we do for that? Should uh, we make a turkey? That'd be kind of cool. Um, should we, uh, and I was like, well, that'd be too much trouble to uh, make a turkey for Thanksgiving in May. And I thought, well, um, maybe we could just have some of the kids um, get some uh, slices of turkey meat. We just pass turkey meat around. And I thought uh, that would be a little unsanitary, maybe a little gross. And so I punted on all those ideas, and I thought, well, we'll just spend some time considering this psalm of thanksgiving, Psalm 107. It's one of my favorite psalms to preach through. Uh, I've preached through it before, but probably none of you will remember. It's been several years ago, or maybe you weren't even here. And so love preaching through Psalm 107. Uh, go ahead and get into the intro. Get some scripture in front of you. You can scan uh, the QR code up there if it's uh, helpful for you and pull it up on your device. You can use a good old hard copy if that's helpful as well. And as we uh, look at this psalm, I'm going to have you uh, interact with some people around you a bit uh, different times in this psalm. There'll be times when we read this together. Uh, for this first section, uh, just want to read it uh, out loud for you guys. You can follow along uh, with, with me in your scriptures. Psalm 107 starts like this. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. For his steadfast love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from trouble, and gathered in from the lands from the east and from the west and from the north and from the south. And so we're told here to give thanks, and you should immediately ask, well, why should I give thanks to the Lord? Oh, what's the why in here? Why should I give? Because I think we, we, when we come to thanksgiving, we, we just assume, yeah, we're supposed to. We're, we're supposed to give thanks. That's just what we're supposed to do. Maybe we've never paused to ask, well, what does the Scripture say about why? Why should we give thanks? And I love that this... Scripture here gives us reason to give thanks. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Well, why? Because he's what? Because he's good. That's why we give thanks to the Lord, because he's good. That's what the psalmist says. That should be at the heart of our thanksgiving, because he's good. And even right here at the beginning, we're going to talk about his goodness and his love this morning throughout this psalm. But I think it's helpful to mention right here at the beginning that we're not always sure of God's goodness, right? If we're honest, we don't beat around the bush here typically in, in our time in the Word, right? That some of you read that and you go, well, I'm not sure I can give thanks because I'm not sure of His goodness. And so how do we know He's good? What's the key here in knowing that He's good? Well, the psalmist gives us an answer to that as well. The psalmist tells us why He's good. He says, we know he's good because his steadfast love endures forever. Do you see that? Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. For his steadfast love endures 
forever. How do we know he's good? Because of his steadfast love. And that may be refreshing to you. It may be new to you to consider that truth. We give thanks. Why do we give thanks? Because he's good. How do we know he's good? Because his steadfast love endures forever. And regardless of what translation you're reading, this idea of enduring love is paramount. And it comes through, regardless of what translation you might be reading this morning, his love is a love that endures, it lasts, it's steadfast in that it's unwavering. It's not a love that's moved. There's not anything or any circumstance that can deter it or change it. It's a covenantal love. I love to think through the visual kind of side of some of these truths. What does it look like for him to have a steadfast love, for for his love to be steadfast, to be enduring? And I just thought, you know, if uh, it just so happens uh, most of the time during our services, uh, the morning train comes, which is always interesting, especially when we have the door open. It may come here in a little bit and start blaring its horn, even when we meet outside next week. The train comes through. And if I physically went down to the train tracks here and I tried to restrain the train, if I tried to hold it back, right, I couldn't. Physically, it'd be impossible. There's nothing I could do to stop the progression of that train. And that's kind of the imagery we get when we think about his love being steadfast and enduring forever. There's nothing we can do to prohibit it or change it. And I would ask, do you really believe that type of love could be directed at you from the Lord? So question worth asking. Do you really believe that that kind of love could be directed at you from the Lord? Because some of us really wrestle with that. If we don't wrestle with God's goodness, maybe we wrestle with this steadfast, enduring love. Because I think the way we, the way we deal with it is that we we think through that, that, that maybe my actions have somehow prohibited the ability of his love to move forward in my life. Maybe our actions have prohibited the ability of God's love to move forward in my life. And I, I've used this with you guys multiple times, uh, and I'll continue to use this quote in our time it's from book uh, Gospel that we've referred to a lot. We used it in Bible study time last year. But it's this truth that there's nothing I can do to make him love me more and nothing I have done that makes him love me less. We'll continue to point to that as truth, right? And, and just think through what that looks like in your life and whether you believe that to be true. Jesus, that through you, there's nothing I have done that that makes you love me more, nothing I could do that would make you love me less. That's the idea of God's steadfast love, God's enduring love. Another theme of this psalm is the declaration of those people who have believed the Lord's steadfast, enduring love. It says, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. If you caught that uh, right there in verse 2, let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from trouble. If you've grown up or are part of young life, you know about the say-so night. That's the verse that that comes from. Let them speak about their experience with him and his love. And then verse 3. Love this. Look at verse 3 again. It says that he's gathered in from the lands, from the east and from the west, from the north and from the south, those that he's redeemed. 
And that was a verse that when I preached through this before, I've just kind of skimmed over, never really paused to think what the depth of that is. And even this morning in my kind of final preparations, this is what I typed out, and maybe this is for some of you. Can I tell us this morning, he can gather anyone he wants from anywhere he wants. There's no one out of his reach. So, so if you came in this morning thinking that you were out of his reach, maybe you read that and go, he's gathered, he's gathered the redeemed in from the north, from the south, from the east, from the west. He gathers whoever he desires from anywhere he wants. No one's out of his reach. So from here, we're going to work through uh, eventually verse 32. And so you're like, man, we got a lot of verses to cover. Uh, We'll motor through these pretty quickly. But I want to communicate to you the structure of this psalm before we jump in and continue after verse 3. From here, the psalmist is going to give us four examples of people who have experienced the Lord's steadfast and enduring love. So four examples, groups of people who have experienced the Lord's steadfast, enduring love. And with each group, the structure will be very similar. Uh, You'll see that as we continue, that this group, uh, first we'll see uh, their plight uh, or uh, their circumstance. Um, Next, we'll see their action. And then third, we'll see God's action. And so we'll see that pattern repeated, their plight, their action, and then God's action. In other words, their circumstance what they did, and then what God did. Uh, first example, let's jump in here, verses uh, 4 through 9. Um, I'll read this and kind of get us into our pattern, and then I'll have you guys do some work as well. So uh, verses 4 through 9, here's how it reads. Some wandered in desert wastes, finding no way to a city to dwell in, hungry and Thirsty, their soul fainted within them. And if we pause right there, that's their plight. That's this first group's plight. What's their circumstance? Well, they're wanderers. They've wandered in desert wastes, finding no way to a city to dwell in. Hungry and thirsty, their soul fainted within them. And if, if we could begin to kind of consider what, they may, that, what that might look like. Again, we said wanderers. And as we work through these four groups of people, chances are the Lord may point you to one from his word to say, I feel like that's me in this season of life. I feel like that's me this morning as we gather together. And so this first group are ones of wanderers, wandering in desert wastes, finding no way to a city to dwell in. They don't belong, okay? There's nowhere for them to belong. For some of you, that hits you, right? Of like, I feel like that's me right now. Maybe you just moved here to the area. Maybe you're in a season of life where things are in transition and you don't feel like you have any belonging. They're hungry and thirsty and their soul fainted within them. Let's see what they do. This is the second part, and this will be repeated as we move through here. Verse 6, then they cried to the Lord in their trouble. And what did the Lord do? He delivered them from their distress. And right here in the pattern repeated, we're going to see both things, thing that things that they do, and then things the Lord does. And it's mentioned, it's going to repeat in each of these groups of people. But then we get a further explanation as to what he did. The part that we do, very small, cry out, right? <laughs> Even a baby can cry out. They cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. 
And then we get more explanation as to exactly what the Lord did. How did he deliver them? Look at verse 7. He led them. Remember, we're talking about wanderers here. People that are directionless. They don't know where to go. Well, the Lord leads. He led them by a straight way till they reached a city to dwell in. He's given them belonging. He's given them a place to belong, so to speak. Verse 8, let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. And then get this, verse 9, for he satisfies the longing soul. Remember this group, they don't, not only wondered, but they were hungry. They were thirsty. Their soul fainted. And what did the Lord do? He satisfies the longing soul. And the hungry soul, again, clue in, we're talking more about bellies here, right? The hungry soul he fills with good things. So I don't know if you consider yourself a wanderer this morning, but hear the word of the Lord. When we cry out to him, he delivers the wanderers. Second group, told you guys we kind of motor through here pretty quickly. Second group here of people, we're going to see some repeated pattern here. And so with someone around you, we do this pretty regularly. And so I want you to turn to one or two people around you and someone out loud will read this uh, to your group of two or three. And so I want you to read out loud verses, um, let's see, 10 through 12, 10, 11, and 12. And notice what their plight is. Again, this is the plight. Ready, go. All right, sounds like you guys are winding that down. Their plight, here's what their plight was. Listen to this, here's, here's their plight. It says that they sat in what? Darkness, sat in darkness, and in the shadow of what? Death, pretty ominous, right? The next thing it says about them is that they were prisoners in affliction and in irons. And then it gives us some explanation as to why they're imprisoned. Why they're in irons. For they had rebelled against the words of God and spurned the counsel of the Most High. So he bowed their hearts down with hard labor. They fell down with none to help. It's their plight. If you've lived any kind of life up to this point, you probably can identify with that, of being in a season, maybe, where you found yourself a prisoner because of your own sin, right? You found yourself in great darkness, maybe even in the shadow of what you would call shadow of death because of the sin, because of ways that you had disobeyed God. After we get through that phase of blaming God for why we are, right? Which is, seems to be our first kind of response of when we're in a tough situation, we, we point to God and go, God, why did you put me here in seems that what the psalmist is recognizing here is that really the darkness that he's living in is because of his own rebellion 
toward God. He rebelled against the words of God. Keep that in mind, the words of God, because we're going to see that come to life here in a second. Sat in darkness, shadow of death. And when you're in the shadow of death, and we don't, we don't minimize this or, or take it lightly when we read what the psalmist says here, being in the shadow of death. When you're in the shadow of death, life doesn't seem it's worth living, right? When you're in the shadow of death, then it's a dark place to be. It's a place of no hope. Prisoners in irons because of their rebellion think suffering because of sin and poor decisions. Well, this group, let's continue. What do they do? Verse 13. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. Again, there it is with the second group, this repeating pattern that we see. They cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. But this is where it gets really beautiful. Verse 14. How did the Lord deliver them? What did he do? What did it look like? What, what did this group of people's deliverance look like? Verse 14. He brought them out of darkness and the shadow of death. So remember when they were in darkness, they sat in darkness and they were in the shadow of death. Well, what does the Lord do? Well, he brings them out of darkness, implied into light, right? If you're bringing someone out of darkness, it's into light. Brought them out of darkness and the shadow of death. And I love this line. He burst their bonds apart. What does the Lord give this group? Gives them freedom and he gives them light through himself. Gives them light and gives them freedom. Verse 15, and let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love and his wondrous works to the children of man. Verse 16, for he shatters the doors of bronze and cuts into the bars of iron. Wow, what imagery there, right? Maybe that describes you in some way, shape, or form this morning where you would identify yourself as having rebelled against the words of God and find yourself in a place of imprisonment because of your own sin. May you see what the Lord offers to those who cry out. Let's go to the third group here says some were fools through their sinful ways and because of their iniquities suffered affliction. So this is similar to the other group, right? Except it adds this piece of foolishness, right? Adds this piece of foolishness. Some were fools in their sinful ways. Anybody been there before? Yep. If you lived any life, you've been there before. A fool in your sin. Because of their iniquities suffered affliction. They loathed any kind of food. Anybody been to that point? Where you're just in such a dark place that you don't even feel like you can eat. You're just in such a dark place that you lose your appetite for food. And this group says as well, like the one before, says they drew near to the gates of death. And I look at this third example, foolishness in their sin, which led to suffering, which led to loss of appetite, and really hopelessness. They were near death. Because really what it means when you quit eating is that you don't want to live anymore. Whether or not you would consider yourself to be suicidal, that's where you are. You, you've, you've lost the will to even eat. 
which translates to you're not sure you even want to live anymore, at the gates of death. Well, we'll see our pattern again. Verse 19, they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. This is beautiful. Verse 20, look at this. He sent out his word. Remember the second group? They had rejected God's word. There's some similarity here to this third group. What did God do? He sent out his word and healed them and delivered them from their destruction. Verse 21, let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. And let them offer sacrifices of thanksgiving and tell of his deeds in songs of joy. Amazing stuff with this third group. This third group who were fools in their sinful ways and in their iniquities had lost even the desire to eat and they drew near the gates of death until they cried out to the Lord. And the Lord showed up in a powerful way. Words, by his words, he brought healing to them and delivered them from their destruction. While these last two groups we've looked at, the middle two groups, groups two and group three, seem to be directly related to their sin, their rebellion, their foolishness in their sin as to how it affected their plight. Their plight was caused by their sin. This fourth group is a little different. There's no real evidence of sin here. It's a little different. I think maybe this may hit hit some of us. Let's read, uh, in fact, you guys read uh, with someone around you verses 23 to 27. Verses 23 to 27. Ready, go. Okay, this is interesting. This fourth group, while as groups two and three, their plight seemed to be directly related to their sin and their foolishness in their sin and their rebellion. Even the first group, uh, being a wanderer, you can uh, make that uh, a sin issue, or maybe it's not, but this fourth group here doesn't seem to be any sin issues as to uh, the way it may affect their plight. It says that they were doing business going about their work, and they encountered the Lord's power on the seas. Love this when it says, verse 26, they mounted up to the heaven, and you can imagine this boat way up on the highest wave, and then they descended that next wave. It says their courage melted away in their evil plight. 
And, and, and this is where we may get a little bit of clue as to what's going on, where, whereas initially maybe they were just doing business with, without anything, but there's some evidence here that maybe part of what they were doing was, was sinful. Maybe the evilness is linked to their courage melting away. It's a little hard to know for sure what the author meant there. But either way, they've gotten to a place of sin because of their circumstance. Their courage melted away, and I love verse 27. It says they reeled and staggered like drunken men. And then it says they were at their wits' end. ESV says that they were at their wits' end. Anybody ever been there before? At the end of your wits, uh, I have a note in the ESV uh, that the maybe more literal translation from the Hebrew is this, and all their wisdom was swallowed up. Anybody been at that place where you felt like all your wisdom, all your efforts to figure out what the Lord was up to had been swallowed up? You were at your wits end, the end of your wisdom, so to speak. And here's what they did. This group that maybe launched out with pure motives in their work, encountered some crazy circumstance, and their courage melted away into a place of fear and apparent sin. They reeled and staggered like drunken men at their wit's end. And what did they do? Verse 28, then they cried to the Lord in their trouble. And he delivered them from their distress. And here's what the Lord did. This is beautiful. For those of you that feel like maybe up is down and down is up in your life right now. Feel like you've been tossed on the waves. You feel like you're in a place of fear. To the point that that's affected your communion and connection with the Lord. Maybe you hear this, verse 29. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet. And I love this next line. He brought them into their their desired haven. Some translations read, brought them into harbor. Love the imagery there. If you grew up around water or grew up around the ocean or even been to visit the way the harbors lined with rocks or barriers so that the waves don't intrude, there's a certain peace and stillness inside the harbor, and that's where he brought them. Verse 31, let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. Verse 32, let them extol him in the congregation of the people. So this moves to a place of public thanksgiving, of giving thanks in public to the Lord for his great work. Let them extol him in the congregation of the people and praise him in the assembly of the elders. So here's what we've seen. We have wanderers who are hungry and thirsty with no belonging. And the Lord leads them to a city, to a community, and satisfies them. Second group, we have the rebellious prisoners in the dark. And he brings them into the light, breaks their chains, and frees them. We have this third group. We see rebellious sinners suffering because of their foolishness and near death. 
And the Lord heals them with his words, rescues them from the grave. And finally, those disoriented and fearful at their wit's end, and he stills the storm and guides them into harbor. The action that we as people take is pretty simple. We cry out to the Lord in our distress, in our trouble, and he rescues. And then upon us experiencing his enduring and steadfast love, we give thanks. And I think the, there's the train. Nothing I could do to stand in front of it right now, right? Nothing I could do to stop it. I think there's application to be found for each of us in at least one of these groups today. That's what we said from the beginning. At least one of these groups, I think there's application to be found with, with our current circumstance or our current plight. And may we be the same as the psalmist here. May we say, Jesus, I need you. And in the middle of my need, Jesus, you demonstrated your steadfast love for me on the cross. Dying for me and giving me life, that's the redemption that he's offered us. That's, what, that's how he's delivered us from our distress and our sin. Maybe your confession this morning is, thank you, Lord, for your goodness. And regardless of what my circumstances currently are, because we can say that, right, God? Regardless of what my current circumstances are, God, I can confess that you are good. Well, why? Because of your steadfast love that endures forever that captures us and sweeps us up even in our distress, even in our wandering, and even in our foolishness and our rebellion and our fearfulness. So maybe our confession today is thank you, Lord, for your goodness and for the steadfast love that you've put on display for me, Jesus, through your work on the cross and your resurrection. Thank you for reminding me of your goodness and your enduring love. I'm going to wrap up here and give us some time in prayer to process the truth that we've seen in his word this morning. And maybe by the power of his spirit, our response is to cry out to him, right? Maybe it's already become evident to you one of these spots where one of these groups of people that you identify with, that you would say, Lord, that's, that's me. Lord, would you give me the strength to cry out to you this morning? Maybe in a way you haven't cried out to him in a long time, or maybe ever. And may you sense the deliverance that our Redeemer brings, that we might confess, Lord, you are good. Even if my circumstances don't change, I don't believe this psalm is about him changing our circumstances when we cry out to him. That, that's not always what he's up to. But he promises us his presence right in the midst of this. And he promises deliverance for us from the enemy, from death, from the grave by his shed blood. If you're not usually here with us. Most weeks we take communion uh, during our last song. And so what I would encourage in the, in the coming moments is for you to interact with the Lord in prayer. That by His Spirit you would cry out to Him. That you would confess His goodness. 
even in the midst of hard circumstances, you would say, God, I know you're good because of your steadfast love. Maybe he brings you into harbor, so to speak, this morning. I'm going to give us just a few moments in silence to process with him and to pray and to meditate on the truths that we've seen here in his word. Let's pray together.